next week, Lord willing, we'll touch on a little bad news, but get to the really, really good news. Um, a lot of times Carter Hart we refer to as the quotable Carter Hart, and uh, who is with us up here today on the panel. And one of my favorite things about the sheet that we gave you a couple weeks ago was um, it had a lot of bad news on it about man's depravity. And Carter said um, when we when he first got that sheet, he's like. I have never been so encouraged in one morning. And all there was was verses about our own depravity. I don't mean to... Why was that so encouraging to you? Because it doesn't seem encouraging sometimes. For sure not to the natural man. But now you're the supernatural man because of the Lord's work in you. Yeah, I think that uh, what made it probably so encouraging is that the fact that we can't um, really appreciate God's um, grace and his mercy and his glory and the work that he has done in his son without understanding who we really are. Yeah. And the natural man, I don't think we could quite understand uh, who we are in light of who God is. Wow. So. That is the message of today for sure. In chapter 3, um, 10 through 18, that is exactly the message, is the natural man cannot understand um, God's, the need for the Lord, nor his grace, nor his mercy, until there is that understanding of, uh-oh, I'm in, I'm in big trouble. And then that just the, makes the good news so very good. And so certainly in the way um, God has ordained this by giving us his word. The book of Romans is fantastic in helping us to understand the bad news first. And I know it's been a lot of weeks, so thank you for kind of persevering there. Um, would you, Grant, uh, maybe before Josh prays for us, would you kind of give us a little summary of the last three chapters up to this point, and then we'll get busy? Sure, I can do it. Maybe just real quick, um, I think Paul has been dealing with, uh, in chapters 1 through the first part of 3, uh, the utter sinfulness of all men. So Jew, pagan, uh, sorry, pagan, Gentile in the first chapter to the religious Jew in the second chapter, uh, showing that all fall under the condemnation of sin, that all are under sin. And I think, um, so in last week we were talking about Paul was getting at with the Jews, if they're so morally uh, corrupt, they were wondering how, how can God be just? If we're so morally corrupt, how can we be uh, condemned for our sins? And I think what, that's what Paul is introducing here in chapter, or the first nine of chapter three. Um, he's saying that he's already charged that all are under sin, confirming that through one through three, that's really what he was getting at, that all are under sin. And they were asking, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. So they're confused how, or he, they're calling out Paul that this is not right for God to be um, sovereign in this way. If we're so morally unable to do any spirits of good to us, how can God be right in condemning us? And I think that's highlighted again. He brings it back up in, in chapter 9. Um, the verses are very similar. In verse 14 of chapter 9, he says, What shall we say then? When 
he's saying, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. It sounds very much like what he was saying in chapter 6 and then in chapter 3. And then they say, but if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Would be what Paul is saying. And then he, he brings it up again in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? So I think Paul is really getting at this idea of if um, all men are totally depraved, Jew or Gentile. We'll talk about it today with the verses that we get into in chapter 3. They have total inability to do any spiritual good on their own account, by their own desires. Um, and he doesn't really answer it in chapter 3 when they have those hypothetical questions that he puts forth. He gets more into it in chapter 6, and then he goes into it in, in more detail in chapter 9. Um, but I do think that's highlighting that Paul is now going back into chapter 3. He's going to explain that, indeed, all people are totally depraved. Good. And that gives us some incentive to come in June and in September to, to Romans class. Josh, would you read where we're at today now from verse 9 to mm -hmm. 18 and pray for us and uh, and we will go to work on um, kind of the last part of the bad news here. Sure. Starting in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Father, I pray that as we dive into this portion of Scripture, that your spirit would guide us as we teach and that the word would, would fall on soft hearts. Lord, I pray that you'd convict us of sin where it's present and help us to gain a true and accurate knowledge of your revelation here in Romans chapter 3. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. So we see a little bit of a summary of uh, what 118 to up to this point in chapter 3 is in these just devastating um, verses um, and uh, certainly one of the commentators said this is really maybe as thorough and as a complete um, kind of treatise of man's sinfulness as as we're going to get in scripture and there's but there's so many there's just so many places in scripture where we see this and uh, and you know what maybe it'd be worth it just to um, to go back to a few of these, and you can write these down, or you can look at them. Let me just kind of give you a, a little bit of a blitzkrieg of uh, of a few places that we see this. There's eight of them uh, that I want to read you. We we talked about this at Black Mountain last week. Um, Genesis six five. I think you'll you'll see this summed up right here. All of these things. This is throughout Scripture. Um, Grant's going to read us a place where Jesus mentions maybe 20 different times about man's sinfulness this is just throughout scripture and, and uh i think it was Boyce that said maybe the most repeated thing throughout all of scripture is this idea of man's sinfulness it's just it's vital that we understand it genesis 6 5 the lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth 
and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continuously. I think you'll see that in this passage. Psalm 51.5, when did we uh, become sinful? It's nine months longer than we've been alive, right? Outside the womb. Behold, David says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So that was even at conception. One cell in the womb. All we, um, this is Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Our most righteous act is like filthy rags. Isaiah 64, 6. So again, he starts, isn't this interesting? And we get back to Romans. No one is righteous, no, not one. And it's not a surprise that Paul starts with our unrighteousness. The only righteousness man has is unrighteousness. Okay? Our most righteous thing, righteous meaning a right standing with God, the most righteous thing that we have is like a, a polluted garment. Right, like, and somebody described it as the those lepers that would wear, and this is a little bit graphic, but they would wear, uh, you know, when their skin started deteriorating, and there'd be kind of a blood kind of pus serum, just a nasty that garment that they would have to wrap their their skin with. That's what we bring to Jesus and say, "Here's what I have for you," you know, and and, and that's our most righteous thing. That's the best thing. That natural man can do. Um, Jeremiah, certainly we've talked about this. Um, how many times? Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Mark 7, 21 to 23. This is a heart issue, right? It's, it's not something that we get from watching too much TV or uh, from um, living on the wrong side of the tracks. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. From within, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within and they defile a person. They all come from within. Um, the passage we have today, how about Romans 8, 7, and 8? For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. We just have to read that one yet, too. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, another place that's just devastating um, about our own depravity. Listen to who we are without Christ. And you... We're dead in transgressions and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the, of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we have all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, Papa Fred's maybe two favorite words in Scripture, right? Where the whole tide turns. And we're going to get the same thing next week in chapter 3. Where, you know, the, he's going to turn the tide from all the bad news to the good news. But God, who is rich in mercy, 
because of his great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in transgressions and sins, we're made alive together with Christ. And, and why I'd like to hear from you guys on this. There's really three options, right, as how we can see man. Either he's well, and uh, and I wish I would have listened to him in uh, Bible class, well, in Western man, I think it was called Dr. Lehman, brilliant guy, should have paid attention in Bible college. But the one thing I do remember, even while I wasn't paying attention, because he emphasized it so much, is that for a long time, and I think still today, the emphasis was man is good and his progress is inevitable. That's what Dr. Lehman would say. That was the thought so long. Man's good and his progress is inevitable. And we can just see that's crazy. Man is not good. Right? You see that all around. But I think that's kind of what we almost want. So that's the first option. Either man is well, and we know that's not true. Or maybe man is really, really sick. Right? Like we're, we're really bad, but we still have an inkling of where we can really maybe choose Christ. Or, like Ephesians 2, 1 says, we're dead. We're dead in our transgressions and our sins. And if we're dead, that's a little bit different. You guys have any thoughts on, when, as we've kind of gone through these six weeks, why is the emphasis on just that idea of being dead? What's the, how is that going to help us if we can think through it like that? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I really think this, we're getting at, would you say, Jerry, a foundational understanding of man yeah. and what our problem is. And I think it has vast implications in terms of how we understand ourselves and then what the gospel does for us. Because like you're saying and what Paul's laying out here, we are dead in sin and sin has so many different dimensions and elements to it. We, there's no fear of God before the sinner's eyes and there's so many implications like with our speech which I think we'll get into in our mm -hmm. conduct um, I, I think it's vital that we see ourselves before Christ as dead to God dead to the things of God and I think Paul's laboring to make that case here very clearly <clears throat> yeah Car Gray any more on that because that's certainly the truth God's angry right God's angry about sin and, and God's always wrathful towards sin Right? God's angry, and we need to be saved from that anger. And we need to be saved from that sin. So we like to think that we're basically good, but that's a ridiculous notion. But it's kind of continuously promoted in our world. And, and I think in our own hearts, too. John MacArthur says that men feel guilty. Guess why? Because they are guilty. Right? That's why all men have, have guilt. But once we're saved, then there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? Then it's completely different. So the good news in 321 to 26 becomes exceedingly good, irresistibly good when we admit our sin um, and confess it. But look how universal sin is. If we go back to Romans 3 now, verse 10, Josh read these for us. Look at this. There's 13 indictments about who we really are, right? The natural man. No one is righteous. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. 
all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. MacArthur calls this our character. And six times, right, there's none and no one mentioned here. And that's just where you see the starting with righteousness, right, mentioned 30 times or so in the book of Romans. That's where he would start to, to remind us that that's what we need to have a right standing with God. Man's biggest problem is that it's not their felt needs. Josh has helped us with that before. It's their true need to, they, they have to understand and then race to Jesus to get out of this idea that they, they don't have a wrong standing before God, not a right standing before God, not a righteousness. And then secondly, no one understands. No one understands. So he starts with righteousness from God's point of view, which is the only one that really matters, right? We got to go from God's point of view here. We have no righteousness, and it's not surprising that he starts like that. But then he moves on that no one understands. No one seeks for God. Okay? Nobody's going to seek for God until, and this is where we get to really a, a key idea here. No one's going to seek for God naturally until God regenerates our hearts. And then all of a sudden we're going to seek him. But no one's going to seek for him um, in our natural sense. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, can, Jerry, can I just, I want to look at something that may have come up as you guys were reading this this week. It, it did for me, and I think one of the commentators brought it out um, in um, verse 9. You know, last week we talked about what advantage has the Jew. They had the oracles of God. Uh, and then verse 9, Paul says, What then are the Jews better off? No, not at all. So at the beginning of chapter 3, verse 2, he says the Jew, you know, what advantage has the Jew? Much in every way. And then verse 9, what are the Jews any better off? And he says, no, not at all. You might begin to think, is Paul contradicting himself? You know, is he making two competing claims here? What's he trying to say? And I just want to make this point real quick. I, I don't think he's saying something contradictory. I think he's getting at what advantage specifically the Jews had and then that at the beginning of chapter 3, and then he's saying there was no advantage in terms of judgment because both Jews and Greeks are under sin. That's what he's been laboring to prove all throughout. And so maybe just a quick summary. The Jews are better off, Stott says, in terms of their privilege and responsibility. Um, God gave his law, they had the oracles of God, and God's promises will be fulfilled. So the Jews are better off in that sense. But they're not better off, as he says here in verse 9, uh, there's no favoritism with God. He's an impartial judge. He will judge sin fairly. He will judge uh, every man. And so the Jews are not exempt from judgment. And so sinners, including the Jews, are still accountable to God. And then, as you were saying, Jerry, verse 10, or, or excuse me, all, both Jews and Greeks, into verse 9, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. And this was just fascinating to me. I think the rest of these verses go through how human beings are under sin in our, in our character, in our uh, speech, and, and then how there's no fear of God. So 
all are under sin. I think Stott said this was like Paul characterizing sin as a, a sense of weightiness. Sin is, is bearing down on us. It's holding us under. Um, I think Stott said it like this. Paul appears to almost personify sin as a cruel tyrant who holds the human race imprisoned in guilt and under judgment. Um, and I think some, some other descriptors we see of sin, even going looking ahead a little bit in chapters 5 and 6, sin is described as reigning. Uh, 521, Ooh. sin reigned in death. Uh, sin has dominion or exercises lordship. That was chapter 6, verse 14. Paul says, sin will have no dominion over you since you are under grace. Chapter 6, verse 6, we see sin is enslaving. Sin is enslaving. Paul says, our old self is crucified with him so we would no longer be enslaved. It's also ruling. Uh, chapter 6, verse 12, let not sin reign to make you obey its passions. And then it's also typified as something we're being set free from. In verse chapter 6, 16 to 18, you are slaves to the one you obey, having been set free from sin, being slaves to righteousness. So I think one of the aspects of sin is it's not just specific acts that we do. It is that, and we'll see that in these verses we'll look at, but it's also much deeper than that. It's deceptive. We, we think we're far less sinful than we actually are. And then even as believers, I think here he's describing the unbeliever, but even as believers, we can still slip back into these sinful tendencies, and we need the Spirit's help mm -hmm. uh, to help us grow through them. So um, I just wanted to say that before we got too far ahead of it. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Any thoughts on that? Grant, Carter, are you good? I mean, I, I totally agree. I think that was really clear and really helpful. Um, I think that term charged that all both – Jews and Greeks are under sin. <clears throat> Maybe the question could be, after chapter 1 through 3, Paul, is it really that bad? You know, are humans really mm. that bad off? Or is it just we sin sometimes, yeah, we have a problem, but it's not as bad as you're, you're, you're letting on. But I think the term uh, charge that all both Jews and Greeks, all people are under sin, that would be what you were describing, Josh, a deep bondage to sin. Not just that our problem is we sin sometimes, but that we're totally inept and spiritually, and that we are under sin would mean we are in deep bondage to sin, pre-Christ. Yeah, I, I think these verses, you know, Paul has set out this argument, and then here, like a brilliant Bible teacher, he's marshalling his evidence from a smattering of Old Testament texts. Mm -hmm. He's pulling a little bit from Psalms, a little bit from other places, a little bit from the prophets, and basically kind of nailing the point home he's kind of set the nail into place and then with these verses he's just going to drive it home that all are sinful and uh, no you know he even summarizes no human being uh, every mouth will be stopped we'll have nothing to say before God's throne on judgment day and I, it's I, I think in no places are total depravity clearer than these verses yeah no boy that's exactly right and when you get to all these nuns and no ones, right? To verse, um, to verse 11, you just see that human wisdom and understanding is completely bankrupt when it comes to our understanding of spiritual things. 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. If you get a chance, read 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 this week. And it's foolishness to the unbeliever. Um, and then, you know, from Romans 1, you might remember we're truth suppressors. We're ignorant, we're futile thinkers, 
and their hearts are darkened. Unbeliever, again, 8 7, says they're hostile to God. They don't submit to God's law. Indeed, they cannot. I'm going to touch on that um, in a second. And this is precisely why we need God to pursue us and to regenerate us. Because there is a 0% chance that we are going to come to him without God's movement um, in our heart. And so that doesn't mean, though, that we shouldn't get in the way of gospel bullets, like Mark would put it. We need to encourage the unbeliever to get in the way of the gospel bullets, to sit under the teaching of the word. And we might, you might remember from last week, we saw there is benefit for the unbeliever to be in church, to listen to God's word, to read God's word, right? But there, but unless God does that work, it's not, you know, it, there's, it's not going to take uh, a seed in his heart. Before salvation, our will is only free, um, and that's to free to turn from God and not to free, free to turn toward him. So free will that everybody always sparks about, right? That is not really as free as kind of we think it is. We'll touch on that um, in a second. So Boyce said, and um, this is, there might just be a small difference, but I kind of want to touch on this a little bit. Boyce was talking about how Luther, who wrote Bondage of the Will, right? That's what he felt like it was his best work. He saw it one way, and Jonathan Edwards saw it a little bit of a different way. I believe, and this just became convicted of that this week, that I've taught this wrongly. Mark uh, helped me out a little bit yesterday on this, but um, I, I know, and, and I... I'm kind of uh, ashamed of this probably, um, that over and over I've used the idea of um, the unbeliever, like let's say they're in Hawaii, and the only way that they can become a believer is to be able to jump to California, right? Long jump. And you got some guys running off and they can jump 22 feet, right? Let's say they're a pretty good jumper. You've got other guys that are probably can get 15 feet, still a long way from California. I'm kind of rolling off the edge of the cliff and blub, 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 right at the bottom of the ocean, right? And there's, and there's so there's a natural 0% chance, right, that physically it can't be done, you know, and, and Stott said to run. We might want to run a four-minute mile, but unless you really are a good athlete, you're not running a four-minute mile. How many times have I used? I fell out of my chair in Romans class, probably about 12 years ago. Um, I was getting too excited. I think it was Romans 8.32. Forgot to hook my arm. Fell plumb out right off the left side. I just, blew, just fell right out. So there's like 17 students that one of them thinks is pretty funny. The other 16 of them are terrified. It's like, uh-oh, what do we do? So I'm laying on my stomach uh, in Romans, and, uh, and I am, I have complete inability, right? If someone would have said, well, you know what? Just get back in your chair. I had a lot of the will to get back into my chair, but I had zero ability to do that. That's what I used to use as an illustration on this topic. Now, it was pretty funny. 
these ninth graders, um, they see me down there, and there is the one that knows me best is kind of giggling, thinking this is pretty. This is a pretty good show. Um, John uh, Robinette, he's mad the next day because he missed school too much, and he missed school this day. He's like, Mr. Edgar, the one day that I really want to be in Romans class, when you fall out of my chair, I'm absent. Like, would you fall out again today, right? To, to let me see it. But it's like, nope, you missed your one chance. You're absent. That's what, that's what happened. But four guys came to finish the story. Four guys came, but I didn't really tell them how to get me back in my chair. So I have four ninth grade boys. Now, there shouldn't be a four-man job. It should just be a two-man job. Like one guy underneath my arms, one guy, Coach Cross is worried because he's thinking, now he's our principal. What could this happen again? And then, but they all take kind of a corner of me. They go with four corners, but they forgot, or I forgot to tell them to turn me over first. So they lift me up upside down. And so then now I'm face down when they lift me up, and then they have to turn me over like a rotisserie to get me to get in my chair. It is a, it somehow worked. But it was not the way you should do that. Okay, now erase all of that from your mind because I don't think that's what we're talking about. I think that's a bad example. Okay, I couldn't get back in my chair, but I think there's a better example here. Edwards believed, okay, that this is Luther would say that you are physically really unable to do it. All right, Edwards has a little different take on it. He said that your will really is free, okay? But your will is only free to do what your mind wants to do. And your mind will never, ever, ever, morally, your mind will never want Christ, okay, as an unbeliever. Your mind will never want Christ. So he gave, I think, a far better illustration. And that is uh, animals that are carnivorous, right? They'll only eat meat. So you got a lion, all right, in a cage. And he has all kinds of oats and all kinds of stuff. No meat, but all kinds of everything. That he could survive, right, if he would eat this. But he won't. Why? Because he hates that. He's like, I will not eat anything but meat. And he will die rather than, than eat anything that's not meat. Why? Because that's in his nature, right? He's carnivorous. And this is the way Edwards described it, that the will is subservient to the mind. Grant, any... It was any way to help us understand that? Uh, I mean, I don't think I could really say it better than what you just did. But I do think Edwards, he gave a definition to the will, which other people had not done previously. It's uh, that by which the mind chooses anything. Uh, what we choose is not determined by the will itself as if it were some entity to itself, but by the mind, which means that our choices are determined by what we think is the most desirable course of action, which is what you were just describing there. And so he he split it up to what you described, uh, natural ability versus moral ability. We have natural ability. There's nothing physically 
stopping us. There's no uh, coercion preventing us, no gun to our head preventing us from turning to God. But uh, morally, <clears throat> has to do with what a person can or cannot do of their own volition. Uh, he cannot perform the action, not because of some physical limitation, which is what you said, but because it violates his inward uh, inclinations. Um, and the example that Edwards gave was uh, two people in prison. Uh, it's not that the bars are shut and he can't complete his case to the king, um, but that the bars are open. And this is what he says. Now, suppose that the bars of the prison door are wide open for our second hypothetical prisoner. Nothing hinders his coming straight to the king's throne. The jail door is wide open. The guard beckons him on. Unfortunately, the second man hates the king. To repent would be utterly despicable in his own eyes. He would rather not bow the knee to the king, even if it meant his freedom. He would rather spit in the king's face, given the chance. His problem is not his natural ability. In fact, nothing hinders his coming but his own heart. The problem is that he is not morally able to come. He, is a, he has a spiritual problem indeed. That would be how Edward describes it. Yeah. So there might not be a huge difference, but here's why I think it might make an impact. If you go one page back, remember on 118 that um, the unbeliever, the, the Gentile here, has no excuse, right? Um, 120, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since uh, creation of the world in things that have been made so that they are without excuse, right? And, and the reason I think this makes it interesting is they do have a free will to choose Christ, but a moral inability to do so because they hate him, right? They're hostile to him morally, not physically. Physically, they could choose him, but morally, they can't. Naturally, they could all right, and so Mark described this as that, con that conversion is necessarily and freely. Necessarily, meaning that once God does regenerate us, it will be irresistible. There's going to be irresistible grace. So we are saved necessarily by Jesus and freely. You will, you did choose Jesus with your will once you were morally enabled to by God. Does that, does that make sense there, I hope? Um, but that, I think when you look at chapter 2, verse 1, you see that the, uh, the, the Jew also has no excuse, right? Um, therefore, you have no excuse. So I think the no excuse part makes better sense with Edward's way of describing it there, okay? And so I hope that that's, um, that's a little bit helpful. Verse uh, chapter 3, back to chapter 3, verse 12. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Useless in ancient Greek. Was he used of uh, a word used for senseless laughter of a of a fool, or milk that's turned rancid? It's useless. Okay, good. And again, no one does good because in God's perspective, no one's good. And uh, and there, it's that's not a sliding scale, you know. Like it's pass fail, and no one passes um, on that. Um, 
Josh, you had some insights on us on the t- going from our character in Canton uh, through twelve to now our conversation. MacArthur called it in thirteen and fourteen. Can you talk to us about that? Yes, uh, thirteen and fourteen. Paul does transition, and like Jerry said, MacArthur shows how, or Romans chapter three shows how sin defiles our character, our conversation, our conduct. But in 13 and 14, you have four phrases here. And I think, Paul, I mean, these illustrations are incredibly vivid, what he chooses to use here to describe our speech. Look at them. He says, uh, their throat is an open grave. And, um, you know, obviously an open grave is not a very fruitful place. Back in this time, uh, you can imagine a tomb that was open. Most people were buried in tombs. The stones were rolled in front of them. Uh, when it was rolled away, it would reveal the decay that was inside. And I think Paul is painting that picture with their speech. Their throat is an open grave, um, revealing the inner corruption. Uh, I think it also could have a connotation here about the deadly effects of speech. He's... Um, making a connection between the throat and an open grave, a, a deadly place. Uh, the next phrase he uses there is, they use their tongues to deceive. And so I think uh, this is connoting there is a tendency to flatter, to use speech in a positive way for sinister ends, uh, maybe for some hidden motives. The next one really got me, Jerry. The venom of asps is on their lips. And I just got to thinking about this. And first I had to look up what exactly an asp was. But it's a snake, uh, a a very venomous viper. Um, And you think about the way a venomous snake, when it bites, it latches on to whatever it's going after and then injects its deadly poison, its venom, inside of the prey. Uh, designed to kill. And so I think Paul is saying here that we can use our words in a way in which to, uh, you know, inflict vast amounts of harm on somebody else, uh, designed to, to hurt or inflict or to enact punishment or cruelty on another person. Um, and, and apart from Christ, this is how we use words. We use words in a very destructive way. And further revealing our sinfulness. Um, And then the last one, full of curses and bitterness. I think Paul is saying here it's not just an occasional or sporadic use of the tongue. It's that the mouth is full of these things. Uh, I think there's negativity or bitterness or wishing ill will upon somebody else, words that that cut down or belittle somebody else. And um, this is what their mouth is, is full of, ready to spew out these mm-hmm. curses and bitterness. So Paul's highlighting here how our speech is corrupted, is tainted by internal sin. We know that out of the overflow of the heart, our mouth speaks. And now, as believers, God's given us a great privilege to use our words to build up, to edify others, to encourage instead of using them in this way. And I think there's some room to examine. Has our speech devolved into any of these practices, even maybe a little bit like the the, the venomous snake? Are we using, mm-hmm. you know, is there a turn of phrase that we know could inflict harm or hurt somebody else? You know, if we say it just like this, 
not as bad as it could be, but if we say it like this, are we d using our words to cut somebody down, uh, even if not to the full effect? Instead, I think we should uh, really consider how we're using our words. <clears throat> Good. Carter? Yeah, I think that what Josh said just makes clear that sin is completely caustic. It corrodes and it destroys everything, uh, every faculty and every um, facet of our being. Because, I mean, Paul mentions here, no one seeks for God. We don't. We absolutely do not like God in our thinking. And we do whatever uh, means necessary to get him out of there. Uh, that's what we do. Even I can remember as an unbeliever just not wanting the accountability that comes with God. Yeah. And the thought that he'd hold everyone accountable, and he talks about um, he talks about the throat is an open grave; it reeks of a of a rotting corpse, mm -hmm. uh, like Josh said, to resemble the heart and the mouth. And he talks about their feet are swift to shed blood; it affects every single every single member of our body that was used, that was created to be used for God's glory. It's now used for the rebellion against God and for um, opposition toward other people. Yeah. Boy, and you see then, finally, our conduct, um, verse 15 to 17, their feet are sh swift to shed blood. See how many different body parts are used here in, in verse 18? Um, their paths are ruined and misery. The way of peace they have not known. And then finally, there is no fear of God before their eyes. There's no fear. There isn't a, a respect or a reverence for God that there, uh, that there needs to be, that there ought to be uh, before him. It doesn't mean that they're necessarily terrified of him, but there's just not a, a respect of him. There's no fear of him um, as there ought to be. And we develop that only once he um, changes us there. I might give that over to Grant to read. Um, chapter uh, or number, page 310 there which is really good but um, voice work backwards here he said the way of peace they have not known right they don't have peace with God we're going to get that to, in chapter 5 verse 1 they don't have peace with God so then they don't have the peace of God you see that in the unbeliever right the Philippians 4 6 the peace that uh, surpasses all understanding they don't have that they don't have peace with each other. You see that all in our world, right? Um, and then, if you work backwards there, in their paths are ruin and misery. Oh, and that's just, all of us remember where we were. And their feet are swift to shed blood. And it may not be that they are actually shedding blood, but what did Jesus say? If you hate somebody, that's like um, killing them. It's like murder. And so there's there's this idea that as a believer, if you know Jesus Christ, there isn't room for any sort of hatred for anybody. There can't be. Right? We're changed. We're now different creatures. We are new create and you can see from this there needs to be you have to be new creation in Christ Jesus to, to get out of this. Josh, didn't you have a thought on that fear of God, verse uh, 18? Isn't that sort of a summary of this, of all of these? Yeah, I, I think it is. I think Paul is coming back to this to highlight that this really is the taproot of all sin. This is the theological source. When you reject God, when you remove him from your thinking, 
when there is no conception of God being the ruling authority in the world, I think sin sprouts and grows rampant in the world and has these effects uh, against other people and our speech and in our conduct. So um, I think Paul is quick to come back there so not only to define sin as it, and its outward effects, but this is really, uh, there's, there's real offense against God here too. Um, and I think true fear is a, is a humble and glad recognition of God's authority, power, and rule. It's a good thing for us to fear God, and we should want to grow in our fear and our respect and love and, and adoration of Him. Um, it's, it, yeah, maybe I'll pause there. Yeah, fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Remember Proverbs 1.7? Grant any final thoughts and then read. I want us to make sure that we're thinking this isn't just a Pauline idea that we have this problem. Uh, and this is from Boyce that he uh, had heard a sermon that uh, a man went through a lot of what Jesus said about us. And I think it'll be a little, it was a little surprising. And Grant's going to read that for us. But any final thoughts, sir? Yeah, I think sometimes reading this, like the feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruined in misery and the way of peace they have not known, we can think, you know, is it is it really that bad? Like, everyone doesn't do that. And so does this really say that all people are totally depraved in their action because everyone doesn't do that? But I think, you know, uh, it was Doriani that said that the world's a little more complicated in that there's the work of the church, there's societal pressures... Um, different um, sins that are frowned upon in different societies, and then legal restraints are placed on people. But if you start peeling those things back, we know how bad it can get when you take away any sort of uh, punishment of wrongdoing, any sort of proper instruction or parenting. You like, Humanity will just divulge into utter ruin, and we would all do this pre-Christ given the right situation. So I think... and, and uh, MacArthur quoted someone called Robert Haldane that had a great quote that said, The most savage animals do not destroy so many of their own species to appease their hunger as man destroys his fellows to satiate his ambition, his revenge, or his greed. I thought that was absolutely indicting. But So to read this, to close this out. Yeah, and this is just in closing. Hear what our Lord Jesus said on this very topic. It's, it's eye-opening. It was to me. Our Lord Jesus Christ, with all the concern, compassion, and love which he showed to mankind, made some very vivid portrayals of man's condition. He did not mince words about the gravity of human sin. He talked of man as salt that has lost its savior. savor. He talked of man as a corrupt tree, which is bound to produce corrupt fruit, Matthew 7, 7. He talked of man as being evil. You, being evil, know how to give good things to your children, Luke eleven thirteen. On one occasion, he lifted up his eyes toward heaven and talked about an evil and adulterous generation in Matthew 12, 39. Or again, this wicked generation in verse 45. In the great passage dealing with what constitutes true impurity and true purity, he made the startling statement that out of the heart proceed murders, adulteries, evil thoughts, and things of that kind in Mark 7. He spoke about Moses having to give special permissive commandments to men because of their hardness of their hearts. When the rich young ruler approached him saying, Good master, Jesus said, There is none good but God. Jesus compared men, even the leaders of his country, to wicked servants in a vineyard. He exploded in condemnation of the scribes and Pharisees who were considered to be among the best men, men who were in the upper ranges of virtue and in the upper class, classes of society. 
The Lord Jesus made a fundamental statement about man's depravity in John 3, 6. That which is born of flesh is flesh. He saw in man an unwillingness to respond to grace. You will not come to God, John 15, 5, uh, John 5, 40. You have, no, you have not the love of God. You receive me not. You believe not. Such sayings occur repeatedly in the Gospel of John. The world's works are evil. None of you keep the law. You shall die in your sins, he says in John 8, 21. You are from beneath. Your father is the devil who is a murderer and a liar. You are not of God. You are not of my sheep. He that hates, it, hates me hates my father. This is the way in which our Lord spoke to the leaders of the Jews. He brought to the fore their utter inability to please God. Following another line of approach, he showed also the blindness of man, that is, his utter inability to know God and understand him. Here again, we have a whole series of passages showing that no man knows the Father but him to whom the Son has revealed him. He compared men to the blind leading the blind. He mentioned that Jerusalem itself did not know or understand the purpose of God and as a result disregarded the things that concern salvation. The Gospel of John records him as saying that he <clears throat> that he that believed not was condemned already because he had not believed in the Son of God. This is the condemnation that men love the darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. He said that not only the one who has been Reached by grace can walk not in the darkness, but have the light of life. The Lord Jesus emphasized that it is essential for man to be saved by a mighty act of God if he is to be rescued from his condition of misery. Even in the Lord's Prayer, the Lord teaches us to say, Forgive us our debts. And this is a prayer that we need to repeat again and again. He said, The sick are the people who need a physician. We are those sick people who need a physician to help us and redeem us. He said that we are a people who are burdened and heavy laden. The people who are most readily received by the Lord were those who had this sense of need and who therefore did not come to him with a sense of the sufficiency of their performance. The people he received were those who came brokenhearted and bruised with the sense of their inadequacy. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for salvation. When you, we think about a passage like this, it makes us so grateful that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and we commit um, our lives and ask for a greater humility and uh, zeal for others um, as we understand our own depravity um, before Christ in Jesus name. Amen. Sorry we took you into the 11th inning. Thank you. If you would next week read uh, 18 through 26.